Hey, Rockheads, it's time again for NDC, an incredible developer conference held annually in Oslo, Norway. Richard and I will both be there, of course, but check out this all-star lineup. Troy Hunt, Rob Eisenberg, Scott Allen, Oren Eni, Michelle Bustamante, Damian Edwards, Brock Allen, Dominic Beyer, and many more. Register before March 11th at ndc-oslo.com and save up to $350. That's 3,000 kroner for you Norwegians. NDC, we'll see you there. .NET Rocks, episode 1259. Recorded Sunday, January 31st, 2016. Hey, hey, hey. Thanks for geeking out with us. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. We are uh, talking modern agriculture today. How are you doing, my friend? Uh, you know, it's fun to, to put this stuff together, actually. I, I hit a point uh, about a day or two ago in the prep for this where I'm like, I have too much stuff. And I'm really excited about the details of wheat construction. I just don't know that anybody else is. But, uh, you know, we'll see. I think a lot of people are. And I think a lot of people are sort of curious to see if there's a link between some of the modern illnesses and uh, the food supply. So I think I think there's a uh, quite a lot of interest in this there's stuff. A, there's, a, there's a long conversation to be had here and it affects a lot of things. So not yeah. a small topic and I, we'll see which way it goes from here, but uh, there's many more conversations to be had. Yes, yes, yes. All right. Well, before we get started, let's roll the crazy music cuz I have something for you. Awesome. <laughs> All right, buddy, what do you got? All right. So um, in our intro there, I touched on, uh, you know, people are, there's a lot of conspiracy theories about the food supply and, you know, Ill, modern illnesses, you know, that have crept up within the last five years and some within the last three years and, and getting more, uh, more common. Uh, a friend of ours, Richard Morris, you know, sure. Richard Morris. Yeah. Yeah. From the UK. He did a podcast that sort of was like ours, but sort of the UK version of that. Mm -hmm. Anyway, he found himself, you know, very overweight and sick and having diabetes. And he went on a Atkins diet and lost all sorts of weight, cured his diabetes, type two diabetes anyway. Uh, and his blood pressure went down, you know, the same old story, the triglycerides went down, more energy, lower blood pressure, like really, really fixed him. And then he thought to himself, well, I'm cured. I can go back to eating the way I was. And then he, he said it really, really kicked his ass after that. Hmm. Came back with a vengeance. So then he uh, developed, I don't know, five or six years ago, this uh, keto lifestyle, which is essentially the induction diet on Atkins. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a little, it's strict, right? It's 20... 20 net carbs a day, something like that. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a lot stricter than, than the general Atkins diet, but it is a low carb, high fat, you know, high fiber to counteract all that, um, diet. And he took control of his life again and weight went back down. Diabetes is all gone, but now it's, it's sort of a lifestyle. He has to eat like that for the rest of his life. He's got a great blog and this is what I'm after here. And uh, it's, he's an inspiration, easylowcarb.com. 
It's a very easy to remember uh, blog. On here, he's got the science behind it, his recipe archive, which is amazing. And uh, uh, there you go. He's, he's uh, an inspiration. And what's the website? EasyLowCarb.com. All right. When I go to EasyLowCarb.com, I get a parking site. The URL is EasyLowCarb without the W. EasyLowCarb.com. Wow. He's got a lot of stuff posted here. He really does. And, you know, take a look at his recipe archive. Like, uh, uh, you know, uh, two other people in our lives who have embraced the keto diet, Richard, mm-hmm. are uh, Mark Miller and Karen Mangicotti. Interesting. Yeah. So uh, that's uh, that's going on with them. And right. uh, myself included. Right. I'm doing it as well. And so this is just one big announcement. But uh, mm-hmm. for anybody who's interested in this type of diet and this type of lifestyle and uh, interested in getting healthy, who's overweight and, you know, has type 2 diabetes, it's a really good solution. So there you go. Cool, man. All right. Who's talking to us, Richard? Grabbed a comment off a show 1220. That's the geek out we did about next generation airliners, uh, which got lots and lots of comments. People care about flying. Yeah. Uh, and this comment comes from Daffod Giddens, who says, yet another awesome geek out. I always feel more intelligent having listened to these episodes, so keep them coming. It was interesting to hear you talk about the differences between the A380 and the Dreamliner, which is a 787, mm. and your view that the A380 isn't the right plane for the times. I've heard different arguments about the merit of the large hub-to-hub aircraft versus smaller aircraft on direct routings from mm-hmm. point to point, and I'm not sure that one approach will win out. As ever, a mix of approaches will likely be the outcome. I don't know. Hub to hub is pretty much one. You can fly an air, a Dreamliner that way too. Yeah. It's just me, you know, when they were doing nothing but point to point flying, the occupancy rate on airliners was 50 to 60%. And when they went to hub to hub, it went over 80%. And that's mm. just, that makes flights cheaper. You know, two ways about it. Mm-hmm. Um, the challenge with the A380 is can you find 500 people you want to fly hub to hub? Right. And uh, the fact that uh, Airbus literally did not take an order for A380s for a couple of years was kind of a sign after the initial wave that the uh, the aircraft was troubled. That being said, with oil prices being radically down, they've just announced a bunch of A380 sales. So uh, maybe it's going to be more popular. Hmm. Anyway, uh, yeah. David goes on to say, I look forward to the time when I get a chance to fly in the Dreamliner or the A350 XWB. Hmm. And I never talked about that plane. No, you, no, no. In, in that plane's a prototype right now. They have the first ones flying. This is an Airbus plane, the A350. And the XWB stands for extra wide body. Huh. So, uh, it was pressure from the industry to make an air, an aircraft that could compete with the 787, but they said go for extra width because that's what people like. Right. And, uh, yeah, looks to be a really interesting plane, and it will be the competitor of the Dreamliner, more so than the A380 ever would be. So he wants a chance to fly on the Dreamliner, the A380, as the dry air on everything else I've flown on tends to ruin me for at least a day after a long flight. And it's mm. interesting that you, you equate that to the dry air, because I, I tend to agree to doing more Dreamliner flying these days. However, on planes like the A380, it's still amazingly comfortable and light years ahead of older planes, such as the 747. And don't let Clemens Vasters hear you say that. This was a fact I was sharply reminded of on a recent trip from London to San Francisco nonstop. On the way out, I was on an A380. The ride was smooth. The pilot pointing out that a 500-ton plane doesn't get pushed around very much in the air. 
Uh, the takeoff was effortless. It was quiet. And the wider seats and infotainment systems was very impressive. On the way back, I was in a 747 on the same airline in the same, quote, premium economy seats. And it was noisy, bumpy, and generally an unpleasant experience. Not interesting. Well, the other thing is, without a, there's almost no chance he flew on a 747-8i, which is the new 747, because there's so few of them right now. He was probably flying on a 747-400, which means it was at least 10 years old, hmm. where all A380s are new. So I think the bigger thing might have been it was an older aircraft, right? which means more maintenance problems, stuff more broken, stuff looser, like just not a plane in as good as condition as a brand new A380. Right. Uh, and, uh, and David wraps up by saying, I'll take more care in future to book flights on modern jets only. I think you are better off compromising on flight schedules to get the best aircraft rather than arriving at the most convenient times. It'll have a much bigger effect on how you feel. And I think this is a really interesting point about the airline industry and the transportation industry as a whole. Mm. Speed is not the most important factor. In fact, I think it may be third or fourth. The most important factor is comfort and convenience mm. then price although maybe price is actually first but those are the bigger measures right yeah like the real reason we don't take the train is that the train's actually pretty expensive because of the amount of food you have to eat on any dis significantly dis long trip mm. right mm. where air aircraft fly fast enough you don't have to eat a lot of meals but they're not so fast that you uh you know take no time at all so Air, aircraft have always fallen now on the side of comfort. And I've started flying that way specifically. I go out of my way several hours worth of flying on some of those longer trips. Yeah. Because I'm avoiding weather, which yeah. would represents discomfort, and flying the best planes I can. Again, representing discomfort. I'd rather be comfortable for longer than uncomfortable and save a couple of hours. And what are your favorite, most comfortable planes? 787 is by far number one. Like, it's yeah. just head and shoulders above everything else. It'll be great when the A350's out to see if it's worthwhile. I haven't had an opportunity to fly the A380 still just because it's not on routes out of Vancouver. Mm. You know, there are relatively few opportunities for me to fly one, but mm -hmm. uh, I'm not going to say anything bad about it. Just it's still a much more conventional aircraft. It doesn't have high humidity either. Yeah. It's, I think the other, the other measure you would look at is how new is the airplane, right? There are no new 757s. There are virtually no new 787s. There are no new 747s. The mm. new 8i just hasn't caught on. There's not very many of them. So, you know, the newer aircraft tend to be more better equipped, more comfortable, and in better condition. And now things matter. Okay. So, Daffod, thank you so much for your comment. .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .netrocks.com or via any of our social media because we post every show to Google Plus and Facebook. And if you comment there and we read it on the show, we'll send you a mug. All right. So you have been telling me about all the research you've been doing on this one, and it's going to be a great show. I can't wait for it. But uh, if there's one overarching theme of, that you found in your research, what do you think that might be? Well, I, you know, I, <laughs> modern agriculture is, is not on the geek out list. Yeah. Right. So first off, why are we doing this? Well, we're doing this show the same reason we did the electricity show. People wanted alternative energy. Right. Uh, but if you don't set a good foundation, it's hard to have that conversation. So right. consider this a foundational show. Although along the way, you know, I, as is usual with these shows, is I thought I understood it. But as I dug deeper into it, I came to realize, uh, as is usual with humans, our technology has outrun our mentality. 
Right. We have a harder time keeping up with uh, technology than we used to, and therefore it's out outmoding our thinking. And you can't get your head around all of agriculture. It is just too vast. Mm. So I've sort of uh, – I, I had to narrow down the scope a little and dig in deeper into, into certain key parts. And so one of the things I looked at was, well, what are the major crops? And there are three crops sort of neck and neck in the world. Now, is this is this the developed world we're talking about? This is worldwide. Food okay. is food, right? Yeah. And this is – I mean, the, the challenge of talking about agriculture is you're really talking about civilization. Really. Absolutely. Right? I mean, there, there's a belief that the agricultural system is what in largely invented civilization. We were hunter gatherers, then we ran across these crops we were, that we were actually able to domesticate and grow. And that allowed us to stay in one place and build cities. And mm-hmm. all these other things came from this. Yeah. There's a whole other conversation we could have about some interesting archaeology that's been found in southern Turkey that predates agriculture that sort of presses on this side. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and and the effects of the effects of brewing and things—it's amazing that all those stories. But yeah, when you yeah. talk about sort of cornerstone crops today, it's wheat, corn, and rice. Okay, depending on how you measure, these are the top crops in the world, right? Like if you talk about total volume production, corn wins. Hmm. If you talk about the most land consumed in agriculture and the most money exchanged, it's wheat. Right. And it also represents the largest source of vegetable protein for the planet. Mm. Uh, and then there's rice. I don't want to ignore rice. There's an argument that that is represents the bulk of the calories for close to 20% of the population of the planet. Like these are big numbers. And soy must come in the top 10 somewhere. Yeah. Soy is in the top 10. Potatoes is in the top 10. Yeah. You know, there's a, there's a bunch of other crops here, but you know what I'm going to do? I'm just going to focus on wheat. Okay. A, it's one of the very first crops and right. B, it represents in dollar value, it represents more than half of all financial exchange for agriculture. So it's not only a financially important crop, it's sort of at the center of the modern diet. And yes. whether the modern diet is, you know, uh, wheat heavy, you know, which we find a lot of, you know, breads are based on wheat or whether it's, um, you know, wheat free. Yeah, well, it, it is. It is a controversial crop, and it's yeah. so massive. And but understand that that controversy is very Western, because in the rest of the world, uh, this is what's for dinner, right? Right. It is what keeps people alive. Mm. All right. Hey, rockheads! As Richard and I travel the world for the Azure World Tour, we're telling people all about our dev-centric friends at Stackify. They've been awarded PC Magazine Editor's Choice for Application Performance Management, stating, and I quote. The depth of application information provided by Stackify totally outshine the other products in this category, end quote. Because Stackify so successfully integrates errors, logs, and metrics into a core APM Plus tool, it's a must-have for .NET developers, which is why PC Mag's Paul Farrell calls it one of the best infrastructure management services of 2015. Try Stackify now for free and they'll ship you their coveted Developers Against Humanity card game. Just activate your account. Use the link bit.ly slash netrocks to build better apps faster and get your free game. Let's talk about the early wheat. So we found evidence of the first cultivation crops, actually the very first cultivated crops, the the oldest evidence they found anywhere. Any guesses? I think in spelt is the crop. Uh, Spelt's up there. Fig trees. 
Now, part fig of this might trees. just be that we can find evidence of cultivated fig trees more so than anything else. Right. They might have lasted longer in a preserved state, in other words. Yeah. It's easier to find evidence of it, but it's, there's clear evidence that fig trees planted in rows very early on. Wow. But somewhere in the, uh, before common time, so nine, that would be 11,000 years ago, 9,000 years ago is the earliest evidence of cultivation. And there is a wheat called einkorn. So the early varieties of einkorn, and this is the Fertile Crescent. This is an area that today is called Iraq and Iran. And we'll talk about why the Fertile Crescent is just not that or fertile these days. Mesopotamia but. before that. Well, um, what, how do you spell that crop? Einkorn? Yeah. E-I-N-K-O-R-N. Okay. Now, the original wild plant is a uh, two to three foot tall grass with a bundle of seeds at the end of it that would shatter as it got to a certain age to spread the seeds. Hmm. Each one of those seeds has a hull around it with spikes on it. And as the seeds hit the ground, the spikes, as the day-night cycle goes, they take on humidity and, and release humidity so that they flex and would bury themselves. Wow, that is right? amazing. It's a very clever plant, right? And But it, it was an annual plant as opposed to a perennial plant. It grows and it dies, and it grows and it dies, and it constantly spreads seeds. Hmm. Okay. Now we get this idea of how do you domesticate a plant? What does that even mean to domesticate a plant? Yeah, right. So when humans discovered that einkorn was edible, now this is not a gluten wheat. Right? Hmm. The very earliest wheats did not have much gluten in it. They were you pretty much what you would do is you would crush them. You have to get those hulls off, and the hulls are quite hard. Right. So you peel those hulls off to get to the inner endosperm. Now, when you, you say peel off, you mean like put in a mill or a grinder or something, well, if you, right? If you talk, we're we're talking very early agriculture. So you maybe have a stone, yeah, and you're hammering it yeah. to crush to crush it, and then you're literally picking through the hulls. Wow. Okay. This this class of wheat, einkorn, emmers, and spelts, are all what they call hulled wheats, mm -hmm. and the hull's not edible. The hull is part of its ability to bury the seed, and so you have to peel the hulls off. It, it limits its ability as a as a scalable wheat. Maybe this was the very that. first job as well. <laughs> <laughs> Quite possibly. But because it doesn't make – bread would be invented later. This These were typically boiled wheats. You would make a porridge from it. Okay. But it's got a high level of protein in it. It's apparently quite tasty. You can still get einkorn wheat if you look for it. Really? I know but, you can get spelt. Yeah. Yeah. And even emmer. I mean, those, all these three early wheats. And the they, other one you said? Emmer? Einkorn, emmer, and spelt. These and are emmer, the three how do you spell that? Very worth. E-M-M-E-R. Okay. All three very early wheats. What does a domesticated variety of einkorn look like? It was the wheat whose seeds didn't shatter off of their heads. Now, think about this. Long right. before anybody was thinking in terms of manipulating crops, doesn't it make sense that it would be easier to pick the the wheat that was still on the stalk Absolutely. rather than the ones that were on the ground? Yeah, or so, you could just shake it, shake it into a, a bin or something like that. Yeah. Exactly. So, you're watching natural selection in action. Sure. The fact that humans would tend to collect the seeds that were still on the stalks meant that the domestic variety stopped dropping its seeds at all. In fact, it gave up its ability to reproduce on its own. Humans needed to plant the seeds. Mm. Right? So, mm. right away, this, you know, long before all of this technology and so forth, natural selection had favored a domesticated crop. Mm. 
Now, emmer came around roughly the same time. It's more tolerant to dry conditions so that, uh, and the, and flood style farming. So it was the weed of ancient Egypt. And at this time, because you didn't have sophisticated storage, hulls were a valuable asset, right? Those hard hulls around those seeds protected them, made them harder to, took longer to spoil. Mm-hmm. So they, they were actually a good thing. Uh, and so they sort of grew side by side. And the fact that they grew side by side meant that they hybridized. So sure. fast forward a couple of thousand years. Now we're talking 7,000 BCE, maybe 9,000 years ago of artificially selected variety of emmer. So same now we're growing, we've been growing emmer for a couple of thousand years in places like Egypt and around the Mediterranean. And they pick out the one, they start picking out the versions of emmer that have thinner and thinner hulls. Cause I don't like those spikes and sure. hulling them is hard. Right. And so Durham is the first of what they call a free threshing wheat. And so was this, you're talking about natural selection. Was this domesticated on purpose to have this? uh, And and how was it done? Was it done with grafting or? It was actually artificial selection. So really what they were doing was simply looking at all the seeds that they had and saying, I like, I'll plant these ones instead of those ones. I see. So they're just counting on the natural variations of planting and, and planting seeds and growing them again to finally get to a point of what they call the naked grain. Hmm. Right. There's no hull on this grain anymore. You have to plant it. It can't plant itself, but now it's much easier to grind. Well, and modern wheat still has a thin hull. I guess they call it the bran, right? Yeah, but it's edible. It is it's edible. not, it's yeah. not hard. Right. Um, the funny thing is 9,000 years ago, Durham wheat pretty much came around. And this is the wheat that today is grown largely for pasta for and pasta. couscous in the Mediterranean. Yeah. Semolina. There's been more derivations of it since then, but mm. more or less through genetic analysis, we've shown it's a derivative of emmer crossed with some other kinds of grasses. Now, I'm, we just don't have enough time to go into all of the animal husbandry side. Yeah. Of agriculture as well, yeah, but yeah. be very aware that at this time we have domesticated sheep, right? And so we're growing crop to feed the sheep as well, mm. right? And so those things kind of go together, and it's in and it's in and because you're growing both crops, they hybridized today. When the most popular. Now, when you wheat, say hybridize, what exactly do you mean by that? I mean we're looking at the genetics of grains. St- found in archaeological sites from seven, 8,000 years ago and seeing evidence of emmer DNA and goat grass DNA. And so the hybridizing means combining. Yes. Every so often, these pollens would cross successfully and grow a hybrid of the plant. Wow. So the common wheat today, 95% of the wheat grown today is this wheat we call common wheat or bread wheat. And it is a hybrid of emmer, which has got relations to einkorn, and goat grasses. Goat so grasses. The, yes. So these are the grasses that goats particularly liked that early farmers planted because they were good fodder hmm. for for goats. And we see genetic evidence that these things cross together. Somewhere in the neighborhood, the, the, the basic version of common wheat shows up around 6,000 BCE. So, you know, 8,000 years ago, we had the the core of modern wheat already. Wow. And there's a few things that were important about it. The first was it was free threshing. So no hulls. Everything's edible. They're more genetically diverse than all of the earlier wheats. 
So they were actually easier to make hybrids. Today, we have about five or six different major species of common wheat, largely based on growing season and environment to grow in. So this happened pretty early on. We got way better at increasing yields on wheat, but early on we were already at this point. And that is, they call it bread wheat for a reason. It was the wheat that had enough gluten in it that it had elasticity if you baked with it combined with yeasts. Ah. Right? And we cannot devalue the importance of the advent of bread In creating civilization, it made wheat wildly more digestible. It provided huge amounts of protein in a form that stored, that crust protected the inner uh, digestible part. Mm. Early crusts, and when you talk about the prototypical breads in that age, they were almost inedible. They were so hard. Today Mm. we can make crusts that we can eat. But the main thing was here was a way to turn this grain that was barely edible into something delicious that stored really well. And around what time do we think this that that modern bread making was discovered and well, early bread making, modern bread making advances a lot further, but you were talking 8,000 years ago. Yeah, wow. Jeez. So, it's been around a long long time. So, hmm. now we get into sort of this core pattern of how do you do agriculture in this era? You have land It has a certain amount of rainfall. You have seeds. You have a tillage method or basically a method of putting seeds in the ground and of turning over your previous growth so that you can put in more seeds. So you would till the land and animals were a key part of that. The first physical horsepower we had were oxen, right? Mm -hmm. And we would use oxen to drag at first wood and eventually metal to cut furrows in the ground to turn it over. Then we would place seeds in the ground. We would protect those plants from other plants and animals, let them grow out their season, and harvest it. Mm-hmm. Pretty quickly on, if you talk about the fertile crescent, it was already too dry to have a really long growing season. While those early wheats came from that part of the world, along with goats and sheep, the growing seasons were too short. And so fairly early on, they figured out how to do irrigation starting to pump water onto the land. Mm-hmm. That process one of the is one of the reasons the Fertile Crescent isn't as fertile as it is today. When you think about Iraq and Iran, you don't think about growing wheat. Nope. You think about desert. Yep. And part of the problem was that the water was slightly saline, and when you pour when you basically canaled water onto the land, it would evaporate and leave the salt behind. Mm. And unless you let the land go fallow and allow rain to wash the salt back down, the, the, the land eventually is unusable. So uh, over thousands of years or whatever, that salt just kind of destroys the soil. Right. Yeah. And realize, I mean, humans knew that salt was destructive to soil early on. If you've ever read any Roman history, you know, they destroyed Carthage and then salted the land so that <laughs> nothing would ever grow there. Wow. So wow. going back that far, all the way, let's fast forward into medieval times. Okay. Basic growing the the and a book I would highly recommend reading if you want to dig into this or the, these early pieces is Guns Germs and Steel. Oh yeah, great book, just a fantastic book. And so sort of you know one of the things that he talks about in that book is that these crops do even better further north in temperate climes, mm. more water, so forth. And 
fairly early on, we learned to do crop rotations. So, you know, the two, the early two crop rotation was one year you, pl- you take your 10 acres, you plant half of it, you leave the other half fallow. You mm-hmm. don't plant anything on it. Mm-hmm. The next year you switch. And so that year of fallow allows the soil to rebuild a bit. Yeah. But it only uses half the land at a time. Then they've discovered that different plants did different things to soil. So the first crop rotation, as opposed to land rotation, was cereal versus legume. So mm. peas are one of the earliest plants discovered it to be domesticatable as well. Mm. Uh, so you plant your wheat or your barley or a, uh, some cereal grain, and then the next year you plant peas on it. So you do a three crop rotation. Now you take your, your 10 acres, you break it up into three pieces, roughly three acres each. Mm-hmm. One has a cereal grain on it. One has a, a pea, a legume on it. One is fallow. And that rotation means you use two-thirds of your land to grow food, one-third fallow to recover. Mm. Mm -hmm. The ultimate manifestation of this sort of traditional agricultural rotation comes in about the 18th century. Okay. And that was a four-crop rotation. The four-crop rotation, this was largely in the UK, wheat uh, uh, over one-quarter of the land, Mm -hmm. turnips on one-quarter land, a root vegetable, barley on one-quarter of the land, Mm -hmm. uh, which has a different growing pattern, and the fourth crop is clover which is a fodder crop like goat grass right it's a crop that you feed your livestock with not only do you feed the livestock with it but then in the fall when it sort of uh you know decays they can you know till it back in to fertilize the soil right and and you have all the animal droppings on it yeah so you're rotating these four crops amongst your land and it sustains the land better Mm. That's sort of the traditional agricultural model, right? We're using the land, we're planting seeds, we're protecting their growth, then we gather them. We have basic concepts of irrigation and tilling. We've learned to rotate crops. We don't have a lot of science yet, but Mm. we've learned that this grows more food for longer. Well, Richard, guess what time it is now? Uh, It must be that happy time again. Yeah, it's time to put my nose to the grindstone and separate the wheat from the chaff. (laughs) actually richard chaff is all i got today i'm I'm just all chaff (laughs) actually it's time to give away a d experience subscription from developer express to one lucky member of our dotnet rocks fan club but first become a ui superhero with dev express ui controls and libraries and deliver elegant dotnet solutions that address customer needs today and leverage your existing knowledge to build next generation touch enabled solutions for tomorrow whether it's an office-inspired application or a data-centric analytics dashboard, DevExpress Universal ships with everything you'll need to build your best, without limits or compromise. Learn more and download your free 30-day trial at devexpress.com superhero. All right, buddy. Who's our winner? Today's winner, Richard, is Quentin Chaulier. Congratulations, Quentin. Golf clap for you, sir. Golf clap for Quentin. And Quentin just won the D-Experience subscription. Big pile of awesome from our sponsor, Developer Express. And if you don't know what's going on here, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the .NET Rocks fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world. In every show, we like to give away stuff from our sponsors. And every December, we give away a $5,000 technology shopping spree to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club you got to sign up to win. Richard, is there anything out there that's got your eye $5,000 wise? Uh, 
Yeah. You know what? I've, I've bought so many toys. Yeah. So I'm not resisting. I'm, you know, while the basement is torn apart, I'm mm. not going to be buying much of anything, but I have my eye on what I'm going to change when I rebuild. Yeah. And things are, are reassembled. So I've been watching closely. Is the 4K monitor finally ready? Yep. There's a monitor made by Philips Technologies that our friend Sahil Malik has bought and loves. And it is a 40 inch. 3840 by 2160 screen. Mm. So the neat thing about that is the DPI isn't so high that you have to scale anything. You can actually fully use the screen. Yeah. The only thing I see wrong with that screen is that it's it's not quite fast enough for gaming. It's, yeah. It's pixel response time is good enough for development, mm -hmm. but if you were, it would smear if you were playing fast games. Now, if you're not that guy, mm. then it's no big deal, but, uh, it's finally a screen big enough, bright enough, clear enough, runs about a thousand dollars. I'm pretty impressed with it. I'm, I got it. I think that's going to go on my dev machine. Very cool. And the, the machine I play Kerbal on will be the, the 30, the 34 inch, 3440 by 1440 screen. Hey, did I ever tell you how my, uh, guitar button Bluetooth effects switcher thing turned out? <sighs> now tell me. I think I can't remember if I actually said how it worked out, but I remember, uh, I did talk about using the flick button. Yeah. As a Bluetooth device, and I did this Rube Goldberg thing where I have the button See? on my guitar, I push it, it connects through my phone to a web server running on uh, a Surface Pro 2, mm -hmm. and that web server then takes that signal, sends a MIDI message through a virtual MIDI cable to my guitar rig program, which is doing guitar effects in real time. Right. So instead of using all those pedals for each one of those effects, this is sort of a unified thing. Yeah. And you have the buttons right on the guitar. I yeah. mean, I love this. It's, it's super Rube Goldboard, but it also makes sense that you would want them in reach rather than have to stomp on yeah, stuff. Yeah, exactly. And you know, when you're a big guy, it's hard to like bend down and turn knobs and stuff in the middle of yeah. the gig. It's just uncomfortable. So, um, anyway, here's how it worked out. It worked, but not reliably. And I chalk it up to Bluetooth. The, the Bluetooth connection would go up and go down and go up and go down. Right. And it just wasn't reliable. I would. Well, and you're talking about music. You've got a fraction of a second essentially to make your change. You're right. And there was like a one second lag. That was a problem. So what I did was I just decided to put the, the touch, you know, the Surface Pro 2 on a music stand where I have my set list and all that stuff and just make the, the app have these big buttons and I just touch them and I just press them. And I have a button for each effect that I want to turn on and turn off. And it sends the right signal. Now, the problem is, and this is really funny, even more Rube Goldberg. The problem is that it's the MIDI signal. There isn't one to turn it on and another one to turn it off. It's just a toggle signal. So there isn't any feedback from the app, from the Guitar Rig app, MIDI or otherwise, except for the little light uh, on the effect goes on. Please. It's a little LED. But it's so small then I can't see it when I'm playing and I can't oh, be looking at it. So I need a bigger, a, a, a better way to tell if an effect is actually on or not. So guess what I did? What did you do? Screen scraping. <laughs> <laughs> yep. More Rube Goldberg. More Rube Even worse, the uh, Guitar Rig app comes up in the same exact position every time. And I find where on the screen by pixel that color is. And then I uh, go there, copy one pixel into a bitmap, call get pixel on it, and determine if it's on or off. And so I do that on a timer in the background, 
and everything works just great. And I'm talking great. Now, I would never ship software like this, let alone admit to a bunch of great developers that listen to our show that Carl Franklin actually writes this screen scraper crap. But, uh, you know, it works. Sometimes my- it's necessary, man. Yeah, exactly. And it, and it works. And that's, you know, I don't let anybody else touch my Surface Pro 2. Nobody's going to yeah. move in on me and say, oh, I just had to move this out of the way. No! <laughs> All my calculations are off. Anyway, I thought you and the listeners would like to know how that worked out. That's funny. So what comes next in the timeline of agriculture? Well, let me just set the stage. Up until this point, as we start coming into the Industrial Revolution, for the most part, populations have been based on their availability of food. I mean, one of the reasons the Egyptian Empire ascended so early and so largely was that Nile River allowed for basin irrigation, where they just basically put in uh, dikes and then open them up to flood the fields uh, once a year, which would put silty water onto the soils and replenish them. So they just grew unbelievable amounts of wheat. It was a very efficient way to grow a lot of food. And a lot, you know, you could really point to some of the earliest civil works projects being irrigation systems mm-hmm. and food storage systems. So, you know, we could argue that agriculture helped create civilization. Was the Nile River slightly saline? Is this the what we're talking about? Now, the Nile River is the Egypt side, and it wasn't sailing. It was right? not. Okay. Yeah. It didn't have the salinity problems that the Fertile Crescent had. I see. Uh, you know, they, you know, Egypt has its own issues as well. Right. But the Nile River is one of, you know, provided an unbelievable amount of water to just, to, you know, when, where you find archaeological ancient civilizations with lots of artifacts, you knew they were wealthy. They had time to carve stone because they weren't trying to stay alive. Right. Right. They had enough food and that, and that's the Nile that made that possible in Egypt. Very cool. But as you fast forward through thousands of years of, of interesting history, just from the point of view of time and you get up into the Western Europeans coming into the age of enlightenment, the beginning of the industrial revolution, food is still largely at a subsistence level. Mm-hmm. Most farms are small. Uh, it's enough food for people to live on. There's a, there's a relatively limited amount of crops. There's a le- relatively limited amount of technique. Um, not a lot of food moving around in huge quantities at that point. Mm-hmm. And then when the Industrial Revolution hits, it's actually a really interesting timing because one of the things that happens with the Industrial Revolution is there is more opportunity in the cities and the factories. So farms start getting depleted of people, and so they consolidate and get bigger. And technology begins to be developed, better pumping systems and uh, and more powerful machines for actually harvesting. So it, it forces agriculture to scale. And right at about that time, a guy named Robert Malthus writes an essay called The Principle of Population. And this is in 1798. Mm. Okay. Now, the world population this time is just about to tip a billion. It's around 900 million. Believe it or not, I mean, this paper now is – well over 200 years old, yeah. and it's still referenced. Yeah. Because he talks about this idea that population growth is geometric. Yeah. Right? Every pairing makes can make another person, and food growth is much more limited. And so, ultimately, the limitations of food would limit the ability uh, to grow population. This would limit fertility, and that it would create wars, it was all these crises. And he started doing mathematical projections, estimating that the world population would hit 14 billion by 2050. Now he was doing that in 1798. Wow. Now he was doing straight line growth. So he was wrong for mm-hmm. starters, mm-hmm. but he 
felt that we were the planet was going to struggle to feed a billion people. He didn't think that we'd ever feed 14 billion. That that was just crazy talk. Right. And this is sort of the kernel of this whole idea of population control and 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 so forth. That's where it begins. Yeah. The funny part is he puts out that paper just as the industrial revolution really starts wow. and makes his paper moot. Right. Because the ne- over the next hundred years, as the population continues to grow, our ability to grow food expands massively, mm. right? The four crop rotation method had just been developed. And, and so we were using soils more effectively. Like a lot of those things started to work. And so the population continues to grow, but we don't run out of food. Mm. Now it wouldn't, the population wouldn't double for another 200 plus years, right? We didn't get to 2 billion until about 1935. But in that time, we would continue to be able to feed them. But the real breakthrough where everything went crazy, the ultimate manifestation of the Industrial Revolution is World War I. Okay, right. And this is, uh, of course, where we got to try out our machines uh, by killing each other. Exactly. <laughs> and in order to kill people, you need to make explosives. Yes. And explosives need certain chemicals. And one of those chemicals that's very commonly Nitrogen. used Nitrogen. Yeah. Ammonium nitrate being one of the key ones. Now, the Allies controlled the vast majority of nitre stores. So, nitre is a, a, mineable, a, a mineable compound that's been known since Egyptian times. In fact, they used nitre to... Uh, a variation of nitre to dry mummies because it's uh, mm. it's agroscopic. Yeah. Uh, and nitre actually contains ammonium nitrate, sodium nitrate, potassium nitrate, and so forth. And it was known that if you use this stuff in soils in correct quantities, it would actually allow the plants to grow faster. Yep. But you could also make explosives with it. Fertilizer and bombs. And bombs. Funny how those two things go together, yes. right? And they're made, you know, the sort of cornerstone, there's three main things in fertilizer. Although there's a lot more things. But the macronutrients are nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium. Nitrogen is responsible for largely responsible for leaf growth. Phosphorus does more of the roots and flowers. Potassium more about the ability to move water around. If you have sufficient quantities of all these things, plants grow dramatically faster. No two ways about it. So because the Allies control most of the nitro resources, they have access to a lot more explosive. The Germans, on the other hand, or rather the Austro-Hungary uh, Empire in World War I, don't have access to enough. And so they have to come up with a way to solve this problem. And a man named Haber developed a process to manufacture ammonia. Right. So ammonia is the cornerstone of making ammonium nitrate. But one of the reasons they were looking at chemical weapons, too, is because they only had so much explosive. So they're trying to, as they're learning, taking their industrial technology and starting to apply it to manufacturing product like this, these are the other things they tried. So what Haber figured out is you could start with atmospheric nitrogen and hydrogen, typically from methane. And you put it under pressure and temperature with a catalyst. These days, it's mostly iron power. Still, This is still a method made day to day. And it makes ammonia. So this is first demonstrated in 1909 mm-hmm. and is in industrial scales by 1913, just in time for World War One. Yeah. Now, that ammonia then can be used to be made into nitric acid. So, now you oxidize the ammonia at high temperature with a platinum catalyst, which makes this thing called nitric oxide. 
then you expose it to air, it becomes nitrogen dioxide, which is actually a very nasty pollutant. And then you react it with water to make nitric acid. Now, this nitric acid can then be made into various kinds of explosives. But if you combine nitric acid with more ammonia, you make ammonium nitrate. You know, we're, we're creeping around this point that we've made before and you've made and pointed out that you know, without all of this, all of these wars that we have lived through in the West and died through, we would not have such advanced technology so fast. Would the pressure to develop this technology have been there without the war? Right. Or would it, would it we, when we started running out of nitro deposits, we would have done it because we were using them up for fertilizer, we would have done it anyway. Mm. But there is a catalytic aspect to war. Mm. It tends to focus more money because it's an immediate crisis. It's a much more energetic crisis than, f- you know, food quantity limitations. Yeah. You know, one would argue we would have gone to war anyway because we were running low on food. So, yeah, it's an interesting question. But that turning point in fertilizer begins the modern agricultural system, mm. right? And a lot of ways by the, you know, World War One ends in 1918. By the 1920s, there, there are plant researchers working with fertilizers and a bunch of other things, which we'll get into in later shows, to start this thing they call the Green Revolution. So it's about a 40-year stretch. In the 1920s and 1960s, we can really lay this idea of the Green Revolution. Remember, the population will break 2 billion by 1935 and get to 3 billion by 1960. Okay? Mm-hmm. So effectively, we're going to you know add half again during that time. But this is the point where food production outruns uh, human reproduction. Yeah. Right. We increase the population from 1935 to 1960 by 50%, but we more than double food production. Yeah. And by 1999, triple food production again, even though the population only doubles over that 30 mm. years. Mm. So we really start making food. A guy named Norman Borlung, who's considered the father of the Green Revolution, although he never called it that, ultimately receives a Nobel Prize in 1970 for this work on what we now call modern agriculture. Uh, and I'd be remiss if I didn't talk about a guy named William Goud as well, who worked for the U.S. Agency for International Development. This was the U.S. taking this technology of fertilizer and modern planting processes and spreading it literally all over the world. Yeah, we had talked about this over a whiskey, I think. And uh, this, uh, we never really figured out how successful it was. Well, it was successful enough that we produced more food than we needed all along, right? Really, you get to a point now where starvation due to lack of food is more of a political problem than it is a technological problem. Yeah, true. You can grow you can grow food in any climate that's appropriate for the climate. The yeah, problem no, is it, it takes money and resources, and politicians are in the way of that. They use it as a, a bargaining chip. Quite often. That they right? never cash in. Because people with limited food supply are easier to control. Right. Right? They can't afford to fight in your revolution if it takes all they can to feed their family. Right. Right? So, Evil. I mean, it's an, it's an interesting side of this whole problem. But th- – after thousands and thousands of years of basically great same growing technology, other than figuring out crop rotation and and, high, and mixing livestock and so forth, and the crops largely being stable, now as the population is going through this next huge increase, mm-hmm. we come up with the ability to nu- nutrify soils in a completely different way. You don't leave them fallow anymore. 
right? Hmm. You now actually just pump fertilizer into them to keep them going. You use machine power and technology to keep the soil conditions in a place. It broadens the growing times. You can go, you can start growing sooner. You finish growing later. You can, we start growing multiple wheat crops in a given year and we get better at the genetic manipulation of plants as a whole. Does it stress the soil more though? Well, this is what we learned. So over that 40 years or so of the green revolution, just let me tell you how much better we got at growing crops, <laughs> right? In 1930, you could typically get about 12 bushels of wheat per acre. By 2010, it's 40. Yeah. Right? Three times more. Yeah. Corn is the crazy one. In 1930, you could get about 30 bushels per acre of corn. By 2010, 160. Now, that must come from pesticides and all sorts of other technologies that we've used over the years. But uh, and I don't know if this is the right time to talk about it, but you mentioned to me a pesticide that was discovered and created in the 1800s, I think, that was amazing. Yeah, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm going to save that for the GMO show. Okay. Just because it, it's ultimately manifest that way. Right. You don't want to give us a little hint. <sighs> yeah, you know. <laughs> It's the, the bigger issue here is just simple fertilization at this point. Okay. Being able to, you know, but the, the core elements of plant your crop, protect your crop, let it grow, right? Keep mm. it away from pests and, 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 and other plants and so forth. And then, and then harvest the crop and reprep the soil again. It's still the same mechanism, except now we're using chemistry to do it, mm. right? Rather than allowing the planet to do it itself, we're, we're accelerating that process. Right. And I just want to, folks to understand. It really worked. It worked a lot. Yeah. We increased harvests by four and five times to do that, which is important because the population was growing rapidly. Right. So we were actually able to feed everybody. So the downside was it's too easy for folks who don't understand chemistry in detail. And, and at first, nobody understood it. How much fertilizer should you put on? Mm. What happens if you put too much fertilizer mm -hmm. on? Right. If, if it grew this much with that much fertilizer, let's put more fertilizer. Right. On. And maybe it grew, you know, there it turns out if you put enough fertilizer on, you'll actually burn the plant. The plant won't grow at all, but you can put a little bit too much on. And the only effect is that it, there's a runoff that goes into the ocean and causes algae blooms, which does right. other damage. Right. So bit by bit, we've been learning that there's damage caused by fertilizer. I would argue that our worst agricultural behaviors, the most destructive things we've done with agriculture, were probably in the 1980s. Okay. Okay. By the, in, by the 1980s, we're in a modern practice where we turn to till soils three times to plow down all the residue. And it turns out that's very damaging to the soil. Now there's nothing holding the soil in place. So rain and so forth tends to wash the soil into streams and does damage to that. Uh, we're using lots of fertilizers. We're using various pesticides and herbicides in, in quantity. So I think we hit the worst in the 80s. And then we started seeing the effects that were going on. And people don't want to change. The problem with farming as a whole is you don't, you can make a change to your plan, but you're not going to know the results for a year. Yeah. So it's very dangerous to make changes, right? This is your economic well-being or the ability to feed your family and so forth. So they're naturally resistant because you can't tell quickly what changes are going to happen. From the late 1980s on, we start learning that we shouldn't till soil. We don't need to till soil. Right? Hmm. There's another, there are other ways to do this. That if you, if you don't till the soil, you have other ways to plant plants. You minimize erosion. You protect the soil. You actually build things up. Uh, 
you you have to optimize the amount that you fertilize, how far you go with all of that. Now, you read The Omnivore's Dilemma, right? Yes, of course. Michael Palin, great book. In that, he details a farm yep. that uses natural resources and crop rotation and animal rotation and the yes. whole thing to make a very efficient, low-tech, like, you know, non-fertilized organic farm. Right. And I wonder, you know, when did that process start? You know, forget so, about all the technology and stuff. When did people actually start paying attention to, well, if I let these animals come here for, you know, a day and then move them over here and then let the other guys come in, things happen. Well, see, that was going back into medieval times with the four crop rotation. Hmm. We were already doing that. Why did we stop? Because as we started to tailor the crops more and more, we were, were trying to grow more food. And so monoculture growing, where I completely clear the land, I grow only one plant, grew the most grain. Right. It was the largest quantities. And that's what we were worried about. Can we make enough food? The capitalist system supports this. Make more, make, and you, and you make more profit. Yeah. Mixed use is more complicated and it has lower yields. It, but as we learned the consequence of that, of erosion and pollution and so forth, now these old techniques come back. Yeah. It's fun, huh? Right. So as we start moving into the internet era, right, the more modern era, a few things happen. Let's not under, you know, the internet era, I would argue, is responsible for solving the population explosion. The UN now says the planet is going to peak in population about 9.1 billion, between 8.9 and 9.1 billion around 2050, and then decline. Because people are having fewer children because their babies survive. Mm. And you, the fact that the internet has spread knowledge all over the world is a big piece of that. And part of that is agricultural knowledge. When should I plant? What should I harvest? What is this blight? Yeah. How much water do I need? What treatments do I need? All of those things are available to everyone. Mm. And that makes a huge difference. We, the dictators in Africa can't stop people from using their cell phones to know what to crop, plant and how to plant it. And another Another great byproduct of this internet age, which isn't related to agriculture necessarily, is just it's harder to hide and it's harder to yeah. control with information. Yes. You cannot keep people ignorant. So the dictators and politicians of the world are, are really having a hard time right now. Right. You can't, there's no bullshit anymore. And technology is accelerating so fast that one of the problems now is that you don't have a chance for your tractor to wear out. Yeah. I read a really interesting article talking about the top of the line, the the top of the line John Deere row tractor in 2000 is not as productive as the smallest John Deere row tractor in 2010. Mm -hmm. Why? Motors got more efficient. GPS automated driving. Why is that important? Because when you're going and spraying crops or, or irrigating or anything that with your tractor, if you drive by hand, you're going to overlap a certain amount. But with precision GPS driving, you don't overlap. How much of a difference does that make? As much as 10% in costs. Wow. Right? Yeah. Mixing GPS data in also allowed them to start sampling soil at different parts and start to figure out that different pieces of soil in a given field need different amounts of water and treatment and so forth. And so they started varying that information based on location. Like, these just get this incredible data. We started getting smarter machines that were able to plant through existing soil. So, this is a concept called pasture cropping. So, in a pasture crop, you actually have a pasture of grass for livestock. Okay. You plant your grain through the grass. So, you have a machine that will actually put the seeds through the grass. After you've planted, but before the seed is germinated, you send out your livestock to eat down the grass. Yeah. Right? So now what happens? Grass gets eaten. 
poop gets distributed. Yeah. The hooves break up the, the sod a bit so the grass is going to grow slower. Right. And remember that grains are annuals, right? They grow, they release seeds, and they die in the in the wild, where grasses are perennial. So they actually grow slower. Yeah. So you 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 pasture your animals to cut back the grass. The grain grows over it and outgrows it. And then you harvest the grain off the top once it's fully grown. And then you send the animals back out to eat down the leftover grain and the grass that's growing there. Now, it doesn't yield as much grain as a monoculture growth, but it ends up making the same amount of money because you spend less money on fodder for your animals. Yeah. And more importantly, you actually improve the soil. You've grown food and fed animals and your soil is better than when you started. Mm-hmm. So the problem is, and this is the same problem in the Omnivore's Dilemma, it, you cannot scale this to very large farms because you can't have that many animals. Right. Right. The number of animals just gets out of control. Mm. So we have this problem with the amount of grain we need versus those particular cropping techniques. Mm. But we're also getting more precise with how we use fertilizers and how we do irrigation. So the the best irrigation systems today are drip irrigation system, where they're literally laying hoses down along crop lines with sensors. Like it's all it's very Internet of Things. Yeah, very much. So that it's literally putting just the water into the roots that is needed. We're talking about consuming less than 40, 40% less water than typical irrigation methods. Mm. Also completely automated. So there's a lot less labor involved. And because you have hoses and direct deposit like that, it doesn't have to only be water. Yeah. Right? It can so, be other nutrients, chemicals and things to make things better. You talk about the robot revolution. Well, farms are where it's happening. Huge. That's where it's happening, kids. Yeah. We're talking about quad ro- quadcopters using multispectral imaging to figure out the individual plant being attacked by a pest. It's crazy. And spraying just that plant. And I'm thinking, how much longer before we're not spraying, but instead using, say, a laser to shoot the individual insects <laughs> off the plant, yeah. right? Like, it's not that it's insane. It's not crazy. You're right. But it's, we're getting that precise yeah. now that we can do those things. Plus, when you have automated machinery for all of this, you can plant the crops closer together. So yeah. you can actually get more yield per foot. Because we still have a, a major agricultural challenge. We're we're at $7 billion right now. We're going to get to $9 billion by 2050. Mm. You know, the the, the US UN did the numbers said from 2000 to 2050, we're increased population 50% from 6 billion to, to 9 billion. Mm. So, but the food's going to, demand's going to increase even faster because developing nations expect more and more food, mm. right? They're, they want to eat too. Mm-hmm. Our production areas are largely committed, mm. right? We're not going to have more land for growing and at climate change is degrading our cultural land. No two ways mm-hmm. about this. We have to continue to increase crop yields to be able to get to being able to feed everybody effectively. And one more thing, and this is something you asked on an earlier show, we were talking about growing in Africa. Yeah. I found a particular case study I really liked because it was a subsistence farmer, an Ethiopian maize or corn farmer. Great. He had a three hectare farm. That's about seven and a half acres. Mm -hmm. And he produced about 1.5 metric tons of maize per hectare. So for his three hectares, he's talking about four and a half metric tons. That's enough to feed his family and sell enough to make about 1,100 US a year. Wow. Okay. Not a lot of money. No. But- you are talking about Ethiopia, where most people live on a dollar or two a day. Mm-hmm. So this guy's actually doing well. Mm-hmm. He should do better. Mm-hmm. Okay. In 1995, 
He gets involved with uh, with the UN crop program that gives him better seed and fertilizer techniques. Okay. Okay. How much does it improve his crops? Oh, geez. This is going to be goes fun. From 1.5 metric tons per hectare to nine metric oh tons per Oh, my God. Right? Wow. Now, what? how much do you think his income increases? Because that's effectively four times, you know, five times. I don't know. By the way you're framing it, I'm thinking not as not not as much. Well, one of the things that happens when you improve production that much is it actually drives down the price of the food. Right. But he still ends up with a net income of about 6,000 a year. So, wow, he's making great. almost six times more money. That is but great. But once again, developing nations have the advantage of coming into this later. The same way they're never going to lay landlines for telephones. They just go directly to sell. Mm. They're going directly into the improved crops and the precision fertilizers to get these bigger yields. So, I think we're already past the worst damage that agriculture has done. We now know we can do it better, and we are starting to do it better. Just you need to be aware that industry moves slowly uh, because this is a very conservative industry, and we have to prove each of these things and and move along. Mm. The side effect of this is that annual income spent on food is going down. It's almost directly proportionate to development. Yeah. So the the people who spend the least in terms of annual income on food, any guesses? Um, I don't know. It's the United States. Yeah. Yeah. It's and one would argue almost too low. Yeah. Because they've cheapened their food to the point where its nutrition is questionable. Yeah. As of 2012, 6.4% of uh, on average of the income of an, of a United States citizen spent on food. Mm. Canada was closer to 10%. But Western Europe and developed nations generally between 9 and 13%. Mm. But then when you think about the next level sort of uh, developed countries, so countries like Poland, Turkey, Argentina, South Africa, mm-hmm. somewhere around 20% of their income spent on food. Uh, India, China, Russia, closer to 30%. Well, you know what, you, though? I mean, what we consider food is probably a lot different than what, and I say we, the United States, probably a lot different than what, you know, Eastern Europe considers food. Yes. Yeah. I, I tend to agree. And there's an argument about spending too little. Yeah. Right. Uh, and so totally. it's a very interesting threshold. But, you know, 10% seems to be the magic number. Both money and time. Well, that's what I'm, the way I'm doing that math yeah. is just saying this is whether it's labor or, or, or wages. Right. This is how it spends out. Um, worst case scenarios for least developed places that where they really struggle, 50%. Huh. So one of the th- ways that we can measure improving life quality around the planet is getting that number down for other nations mm. as well. They spend less money on food, so they have more money to advance their own society. Well, Richard, what's next in the ongoing saga of agriculture and food in this Geek Out series? There's a bunch of choices on where to go from here, and I hope that the audience will participate that and impress us for what to we can go into more of the political side. But the sort of big elephant, the one that got us started on this whole conversation, is genetically modified foods. Right. Which is sort of a manifestation of how we've gotten here as well. And it's a big topic, so I wanted to give it its own time. But I think without this foundation and just sort of knowing how agriculture has developed and and how it works today, Mm. uh, it's hard to understand what's up with GMO. All right, man. I'm looking forward to that one. And until then, we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks.
Net Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Pwop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a transmitter band by the MCC. Yes, I'm a, a dog.